The Rewatchables is brought to you by Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, where you can find two new podcasts this week. 10 Questions with Kyle Brandt. You heard him on the Team Wolf podcast last week. And Sound Only with Micah Peters and Justin Charity. Millennials, pop culture, video games, all kinds of stuff. Both of those things are launching this week. Coming up, Chris. Stay alive, no matter what occurs. I will find you. Last of Mohicans is next. I think you and I are going to have a serious disagreement. A leader who defied authority and a rebel who surrendered to no one. What are you looking at, sir? I'm looking at you, miss. Daniel Day-Lewis. Stay alive, no matter what occurs. Madeline Stone. We'll find you. The last of the Mohicans. All right, Chris Ryan is here. This is a semi one for us. I don't think it's a full-fledged one for us because this was a very successful movie. It's a relatively famous movie. It was a culturally impactful movie when it came out. And now it is almost 28 years old. More importantly, our guy, Michael Mann, we're back. The guy who started the rewatchables with Heat. This is where it all began. We're going to eventually do every single Michael Mann on the Michael Mann movie on this pod, including Black Hat, which will probably be the last one. <laughs> um, I'm surprised it took so long for this one. My first question, what would you call this genre? Because you have Jeremiah Johnson, 1972. You have Dances Wolves, 1990. You got Last of the Mohegans, 92. You got The Revenant, 2015. It's like modern mountain man. Frontiersman. Modern frontiersman, but modern though. Because yeah. there's like the Jeremiah Johnson is the cutoff. That's like the first modern one. The revisionist like frontiersman movie. Yeah. I think okay. I think that's because I you know some people tried to sort of because you know Un Unforgiven came out this year I'm sure we'll talk about the Oscars and everything but um, I think that people tried to make this into a western man was pretty insistent that it was you know this is more of a romantic adventure for him set in 1757 Jeremiah Johnson which we'll do at some point my dad's single favorite movie ever his number one <laughs> Jeremiah Johnson his number one favorite movie ever. He watches it all the time. He texts me, I, and I know he's watching it because he'll just text me. Some still, some say he's up there still, and I'm like, oh my god, you're watching Jeremiah <laughs> Johnson again. This has legacy to it, but I, I think, you know, it's 1992. This is really the last big year of the MTV-ish crossed with real movies kind of thing that they were doing back then, because the last 15 minutes of this is basically a music video, right? I mean, it's a music video, but it's among the best last 15 minutes of any movie I've yeah. ever seen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he perfected this MTV thing that he basically started with Miami Vice in 84. Uh -huh. And then everybody took their swings at it. And then he hit the walk-off home roll with it. And then I don't really, I feel like it started to kind of fade out after that. I would have loved to see the last 15 minutes of Last of the Mohicans recut to In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins. <laughs> And it's just like when Alice is sort of walking out on the rocks and the, the drums come in. Yeah. Well, they could have they could have crossed those movies where you could add Daniel Day-Lewis as he's about to go save the sisters stopping at a phone booth with tubs, <laughs> having a cigarette. Caroline, was it real? Uh, all right. So this is a true connection and a collaboration. Between two lunatics, yes. Daniel Day-Lewis and Michael Mann. 
this could go one of two ways. Either they would hate each other to the point where they, the, like courts and police would have to get involved or love and respect, which is how it played out here. These two were made for each other, right? Yeah. I mean, you've got one guy, the director, Michael Mann, who's essentially staring at 18th century landscape portraits and art and just being like, I want to recreate the way that people saw light, you know, 300 years ago. And then he finds the one actor who's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to learn how to make a canoe. You know, I'm going to learn how to live pre-industrial revolution because that's the headspace I need to be in for my character. They are the perfect match. And you're absolutely right. This could have been one of the all-time Heaven's Gate Oh, man. And then Daniel Day-Lewis attacked Michael Mann with a tomahawk on day 97 of being in the right. Appalachian Mountains with no air conditioning. But it sounds like Daniel Day-Lewis was like, anything that Michael Mann would ask someone else to do, he would also do. And the stories that you did get from this, it sounds like it was a very challenging shoot, but they obviously got something that was pretty unique. Um, yeah. So it's a perfect marriage of, of two complete maniacs. Michael Mann's like, I'm thinking we should do a 38th take. Daniel Day-Lewis is like, sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> Run it back. It's only one in the morning. That's right. <laughs> it's not going to be daylight for four more hours. So Daniel Day-Lewis, he said about Michael Mann after, quote, Michael's very, very conscious of how every aspect of film co contributes. The color, the sound, the lighting, the clothes. I never saw him once make an arbitrary decision on a film of this scale that takes incredible concentration, Michael isn't threatened at all by other people's imaginations. In fact, it gives him pleasure to see where their ideas differ from his. In this business, I don't have to tell you how rare that is. First of all, I don't know what Michael Mann he's talking about because every Michael Mann movie, like three people either get fired or walk off the set. Right. So, But that's the respect that he had for Michael Mann. Michael Mann, in return, said, Daniel's ambition is spectacular. I mean, every actor should be as intense and serious and legitimate as he is. He is totally authentic and totally legitimate as a director. It is a blessing to have that. They never work together again, though. No, I mean, to be fair, I think Daniel Day-Lewis has only made like eight movies since then anyway, though. Could you have seen him as Neil Cavanaugh on Heat? <laughs> is Neil Macaulay? Yeah, I think. I mean, I'm sorry. Been... Neil, I said Neil Cavanaugh. Neil Macaulay. Who's Neil Cavanaugh? I, Neil Cavanaugh played like left wing for the Bruins in the '80s or something. Like you're just <laughs> Neil like Macaulay. Random Irish guys. <laughs> so, um, this is a really interesting question. So, in '92, this is Man's first feature for a, like after for a, after a long break in TV. So he yeah. had done Miami Vice and Crime Story, and he had done done Manhunter, right? He did, man. So the chronology is Jericho Mile Thief, The Keep in 83, which nobody saw. Manhunter 86, launches Crime Story. Does L.A. Takedown, which is the TV movie that led to Heat. Yeah. And then Last of the Mohicans. And did some six-hour documentary on uh, the, the Kiki Camarena story, I think. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. in there, and too. So he was working on this, uh, this documentary, and he starts playing around with Last of the Mohicans. But there's this huge gap. There's this huge gap between Manhunter and Last of the Mohicans. And I think it's funny. Now you look back and you think about Last of the Mohicans as part of man's filmography as if almost it came out at the same time as Heat and Collateral. Like you, Filmographies can collapse in your memory and you can you know, not realize the context in which a movie came out. But there's a world in which he puts this movie out and he's kind of a different filmmaker than the one that we've grown to know and love. I mean, I loved 
I've lo- I love this movie. Like I know that we do one for them and one for us. Some I, I kind of feel like you're maybe doing this one for me, and I really appreciate it. Because I love it too, I, though. I feel this way about this movie that I think a lot of people feel about Titanic. Um, you know, where it is just like an, a maximalist romantic ad- adventure with like a, a lot of tragedy involved, and I I just think it's it's one of those throwback movies. And to see him execute that, it's kind of strange to see this kind of really lush widescreen, almost old school way of movie making with a lot of with a lot of like modern trickery. And then see where he went after that, where he goes all digital with Miami Vice and Collateral and and Public Enemies. And he has a very mannered style going forward, which we love. But the guy who made Last of the Mohicans could have been the biggest filmmaker in the world. So I think if this movie comes out in 1989 it gets nominated for like 11 Oscars. Yeah. It's a little late for the idea. This, as, as we said, the tail end of that kind of MTV cross with real filmmaking thing. But I think Dances with Wolves really undercut it because Dances with Wolves comes out two years earlier and is this huge sweeping three-hour movie set, you know, in the 1850s or whenever, 1860s. And, uh, and wins all these awards. And then within about a year of it, people started, had like Oscar regret about that movie. Mm-hmm. Remember? Yeah. It was like, man, I, it was good, but it shouldn't have done that well. Because you look at what happened with this movie. I mean, it gets no nominations. It had a nomination for sound. That's it. And we'll go into the Oscar stuff later. But it, it's almost like if it comes out three years earlier, I think it's it's received completely differently. And I think it would have been a better career move for him. Because it would have been closer to some of the other stuff he had going on. By the time this came out, just so you know, this isn't just for you. This movie came out on my birthday. Oh, wow. I was, I turned 23 years old. And it was a Friday night when it came out. I, I'm doing this from memory, but I'm 99% sure I'm right. And it's like, well, what do you want to do on your birthday? It's like, I'm going to see the fucking Michael Mann movie and then we'll figure it out. <laughs> then we can go out for drinks after. But this movie came out and I think singles came out the week before. So it was a big month for me. But um, what a great movie year. Yeah. But by 92, I, I think, and I think you were the same way. There had been a few years from Miami Vice. Mm-hmm. The legend of Michael Mann had kind of grown. Thief and Manhunter had become kind of cable VHS kind of movies. Yeah. And there was real anticipation for this. And then with Daniel Day-Lewis, in 88 and 89, he makes Unbearable Lightness of Being, Ever Smile, New Jersey, which I don't even remember that movie. And then My Left Foot, he wins the Oscar. Mm -hmm. Surprise Oscar winner. And gets the mantle of, this is the next guy. Mm -hmm. But nobody could name, you know, none of those movies probably made a combined Two they million were, bucks. I think they were beloved and critically acclaimed, but yeah, yeah, they were not hits. Sure. Yeah. But like the average person would not, when he won the Oscar, was like, who the fuck is that guy? Sure. So then it's like, here we go. Here it is. Michael Mann, big budget. He's he's going to be the guy. And this was kind of like the logical career choice for him at that point, right? And that And it was a career of non-logical career choices. This was the right choice. Yeah. And what's so interesting is that he did it. He, like the, the, it's right there in front of him where if he had wanted to, he's just the biggest star in the world. I mean, you can't deny what you see on screen in Last of the Mohicans, the way he is able to communicate so much with just his eyes. He's a believable physical presence. You can believe him running through the forest and doing all that stuff because he actually trained his body to do it. 
and he learned how to use all these weapons and tools and walked around wearing a thong and like, you know, leather robes for however many months in the summer. And then he kind of, you know, I, whether you whether you want to say he recedes or not, he just chose to not work very often. And the, ch- the choices that he does make, generally, he puts his body and his persona through such a huge transformation that he's not really recognizable from role to role the way... Um, I don't know, a DiCaprio even is in, in a lot of ways with a few exceptions. Like DiCaprio, you see him, you're like, oh yeah, there's Leo. But DDL like really transforms who he is. Yeah, we joke, we always joke about one for them, one for us. Day He's only day, doing them for him. Day to day was like, it's all for me, man. Yeah. I don't care what you guys think. Because you think of some of the movies in the 90s, him as Neil McCauley and Heat is really interesting. He's probably a little too young, but I still think it's a fun one. I think he easily could have been the Jeff Bridges part and blown away. I'm just thinking like mainstream big movies. Sure. Um, he could have been the Mel Gibson, my my son's been kidnapped and ransom. There's there's big budget. Here's a great part for lead star movies. And he just didn't want any of them. And this is really played the a, only time he did it. He could have played the Jeremy Irons role in Die Hard 3, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. You're right. Yeah, he could have been Lithgow's character in Cliffhanger. He just could have been the bad guy. He's got yeah, a paycheck. Well, we're just two guys sitting back looking at the, one of the greatest acting careers of all time and be like, how come you weren't in Cliffhanger, man? <laughs> you too, are you too good for Cliffhanger? But that's why it was one of the great careers because he just never did it. He doesn't even have the one movie where you can look back and be like, well, they, you know, that one time when he was in the Gary Marshall comedy Valentine's Day where he did well, three he scenes for $10 one- million. Dollars. Yeah, I mean, even a movie like Nine, which I don't think many people particularly care for, and I, I frankly don't even really remember watching, was what I think seen as like a kind of mass market commercial play that just fell short. And he even was like, I'm doing this so that I learn how to sing and dance and do all this stuff. Like every movie he does, he seems to learn like four or five new trades. So he does, after this, he does Age of the... The Age of Innocence, In the Name of the Father, The Crucible, The Boxer, Gangs of New York, Ballad of Jack and Rose, There Will Be Blood, Nine, Lincoln, Phantom Thread. It's, it's, he, he's, ne- there's never a Die Hard 3. It no. just doesn't happen. Leaving no. this movie, I thought he was going to be the biggest star in the world. Yes. If you watch this movie, you're just like, oh, everybody younger than Harrison Ford should retire. <laughs> He's <laughs> just like, you have no fucking shot against this guy. This was also the movie, and this is in the height, as we've talked about many times, the early 90s. This is Premier Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, New York Magazine, Goldman's Come, all this stuff where we're really finding out all this information about the movies that are coming and the process behind making them. And the stories about like, yeah, he he really got into this. It went to all the, another level. Here's some of the actual facts with Daniel Day-Lewis. Leading up to this movie. Before the filming, he went into the wilderness where his character may have lived and he hunted and he fished and he lived off the land for several months prior to the filming because he wanted to get a feel for what that would be like. He trained with a U.S. Army colonel to develop his hand-to-hand combat skills and his shooting. And then on the set, um, he decided he really wanted to be a real frontiersman. So he brought his rifle everywhere even to like Christmas dinner and Thanksgiving and shit like that. And then when they were between scenes and some of the actors and the crews, they're having cigs, they're watching <laughs> handheld TVs, they're listening to Walkman. 
he made it, it said he made a point of avoiding modern technology and he was a cigarette smoker and he rolled his own smokes because that's what he did in 1757. <laughs> what a fucking lunatic. I mean, no wonder he's one of the great actors of all time. He's like, Dave, you want a Marlboro Red? No, I'm going to roll my own smokes. Hold on. My mind yeah, is in like, 1757. It takes him like probably 35 minutes to like get all the proper exact 1757 materials. Meanwhile, some guy is just like crushing reds and drinking coffee and being like, you sure you don't want just want one of these? He's like, can you hold my rifle? I have to roll a 1750. And it was like a 12 pound rifle. Like everything he did was authentic. And it, but do you think it comes across? Yes. Like, do you think you can tell? Yo, you can tell because in the first scene, which is a really good one, when they're just running and you don't know if they're running after or they're in a fight or what's going on. And then they're just trying to kill an animal. What is it? Like a buffalo yeah, a or yeah. a deer? Yeah, something like that. Um, and the, just the way he's kind of maneuvering through the jungle. It's so authentic. There are no cuts. There's no uh, no close-up shots with the wide shot of the stuntman. I think Michael Mann made everybody do their own things in this movie. I don't, I don't think there was uh, any stunt work or anything. It's yeah, all I mean, authentic. I think that aside from a couple of obvious ones, I think that they tried to do as much a much as much stuff themselves as possible. The authenticity of this movie really comes across. I mean, from Day Lewis to the fact that he shot it in North Carolina because. Essentially, he was like the actual Adirondacks area that it would have been set was like too built up. He wanted it to be more like the way the wilderness looked in this time period to, I mean, just having like the quality of of like Wes Studi and Russell Means on hand in, in those roles. It just makes the movie feel different than any other kind of like Hollywood action film. Going into the movie, were you more of a, Mohican guy or more of a Huron guy? Definitely Mohican. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I like how they have like this whole like like mole story. Like this is basically like Magua is like a spy working for the Mohawks and then he flips on him and goes back to the Hurons. Well, it also hits. Michael Mann also loves, as we discussed in two different Heat podcasts, these movies where there's not really a right side. Mm-hmm. Where... Even like the bank robbers, you're just rooting for them within an hour. In this movie, you have the French and the English who we're just going to instinctively root against. We want to root for the Indians to protect the land, but Magua, uh, what's Magua. his name? Magua? Magua. Magua, yeah. He's the most despicable guy in the movie. And, you know, you're just, and you can kind of see everybody's point at all times, you know? And Dana Day Lewis is the hero. But at the same time, like he's more than willing to, to throw that other soldier under the bus to save Madeline Stowe. You well, know. He, that guy, that guy takes the L himself. He because he says, "Take." Ah! He, <laughs> <laughs> when they, when he's asking him to translate it, I think that guy sees it as a moment that he can he can sort of save his own dignity after being such a a rat earlier in the movie. It's it's a nice trope that they take advantage of the loser who loves the lead lady and there's just no chemistry at all. And then he gets jealous of the hero, but then this guy actually falls in the sword. Unlike Billy Zane in Titanic, who's more evil than Hitler in that movie. Yeah. He's <laughs> the worst human being who's ever been in a movie. This guy is at least like, yeah, I lost. I'll just, yeah. get, you can set me on fire. That's fine. Do you I got uh, this? One of the things I always liked is um, like man has talked about how the, the 19, I think 36 movie last Mohicans has always been a movie that's like basically been in his head where he was like, yeah. I realized that when I was like a young kid, that movie made a huge impression on me. 
and I I could I I didn't know that it was sort of rattling around my brain for all these years, and this was my kind of trying to unlock that. And I I kind of love love that idea of of a movie that just sticks with you. In a lot of ways, Last of the Mohicans is that for me. So like ninety two, I would have been, I guess like like twelve or fourteen, fifteen years old or whatever. Mm. But like. Do you have a movie from your childhood that like you feel like is just locked in there, even though it maybe isn't like the most critically acclaimed one? I guess we talk about them a lot on this podcast. Yeah, although anything from the early 80s. I think the yeah. movies that you see when you're 12, 13, and 14 end up becoming the most influential movies for you. That's why I saw 48 Hours the most and things like that. So yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, and then I think what he tried to do is basically make... In 1992, he tried to make like a David Lean, Stanley Kubrick epic. Uh, and, and you know, a couple years later, or like a few years later, obviously, I think Ridley Scott does Gladiator. But even by that point, it had become kind of common to use special effects in these kinds of movies in a way that I don't feel like man used. What's the worst case scenario for the actor in this movie? Like who, Dan- who could have completely fucked it up? Like Daniel Day-Lewis can't do it. Yeah, Jan Michael Vincent. Like, no, well, it's like <laughs> early 90s, right? So it's got to be Michael Mann's working with somebody who's famous. He's got to be about 30, 35. That's what Daniel Day-Lewis was. So I feel like Val Kilmer could have been the lead. And I think Mann would have liked him. And you're catching Val Kilmer but like about three years before he kind of loses his marbles. Uh-huh. And I think he would have been pretty good. I agree with that. I'll go with that. But I think it's somebody in that age range. It can't be Hanks. I don't think Hanks was no. athletic enough. No. No, I mean, you actually believe that this is a kid who has been orphaned and then adopted by Mohican, a Mohican tribe. Like, it actually, like, you don't blink when that's the storyline. And that's, like, always been, I mean, the, the James Fenner Cooper novel is obviously, like, a very treasured American text, but I don't think it's well-regarded as literature. And this movie kind of does, does a lot to, like, you know, really um, embellish the story or, or fill it out. I was thinking Costner, no way he does it because he already did Dance with He's Wolves. He's already done that. Yeah. Bruce Willis, too weird. Mel Gibson pretty much does it with Patriot. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I, I can't see him in this. It's really the perfect part and the uh, the perfect guy and the perfect match between two people. Makes $40, uh, 40 million budget, made $75.5 million. It was a big movie. Yeah. And got completely annihilated at the 93 Oscars. This is a tough Oscars year because it's, it's a real VIP club. So, the best films, Unforgiven Wins, the other four were Crying Game, Scent of a Woman, Few Good Men, Howard's End. The more famous movie that got snubbed was Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. See, Malcolm X and Last of the Mohicans sitting on, on the, the sidelines. I, I think if we redo that, I think both of those make it. And I think Crying Game gets knocked out, and I think Howard's End gets knocked out. Right. I think... I think Few Good Men, Son of a Woman, Unforgiven still make it. Best Actor. We were robbed of the most loaded Best Actor category of the last 30 years. Pacino wins for Son of a Woman. Robert Downey Jr., Chaplin. Eastwood, Unforgiven. Denzel, Malcolm X. And then it could have been Daniel Day-Lewis for Last of the Mohicans. Instead, it was Stephen Ray for Crying Game. The Crying Game thing was weird. All I can tell you is I was there. I was in grad school at the time. This was a year where I saw every single movie, like literally all of them. And Crying Game was kind of a thing. The it was secret a, was kept. It was, it was a very good movie. And I, I don't think it's aged well for a lot of different reasons. And now is a complete non-factor. 
Yeah, but that was a real thing where it was like, I think people who ordinarily would never see a movie of that budget or, you know, because that was basically an art house thriller from the UK. And yet... <laughs> yeah, about the IRA. Yeah, but it, the, the, the twist of that movie was so like... We talked about with such bated breath where it's like you're not gonna fucking believe what happens in the crying game as you were just like i guess i gotta go see this movie i gotta find out what happens that was one of my uh my great moments was spoiling that movie for a couple of my holy cross friends because it was like <laughs> don't tell don't tell people <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh after like three drinks that one i i spoiled in usual suspects those were my two big you victories. spoiled usual suspects yeah i did for it for jacko friends. he was pissing me off he hadn't seen it yet He's still mad about it. I would up be to too. him right now. He's furious. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> usual suspects. It's Kevin Spacey. He's like, oh, fucking A. What the fuck? <laughs> so bad. Uh, but yeah, so we were robbed of one of the great best actor categories ever. Roger Ebert gave this movie three stars. Let me ask you this. Would you, if you could redo it, would you go Denzel or would you go Daniel Lee Lewis? Denzel. Yeah, me too. I think it's really unfortunate that he didn't win. I, I think if we were correcting Oscar sins. Malcolm that's X way up there. The, the problem though is Pacino's unbelievable in Son of a Woman. And I yeah, think but there's so that's got lost over the years because everybody is, feels bad that Denzel didn't win. So now you have to denigrate Pacino, but it's not fair. But He's there's so much like movie. fucked up, like you, you know, this is a make good. And that Son of a Woman was sort of a make good for all these missed Al Pacino nominations that it comes at the expense of other people who are deserving of the nominee. I, I hate that thing where it's like, ah, oh, well, we'll get him on the backside of, the, of his career. Well, I hope it happens for the rewatchable someday. Roger Hebert said, uh, he said, not as authentic and uncompromised as it claims to be, more of a matinee fantasy than it wants to a bit admit, but it is probably more entertaining as a result. Open up three your heart, Raj. Come on. Th three stars. I thought Raj would have gone three and a half. Maybe Raj like, didn't like his movie seat that day. I, I don't understand how you can watch this movie. I, I, so I, I think that it's worth saying, well, we can get to this in the, in the awards, actually. It's worth saying that um, this movie was immensely satisfying when it came out. Yeah. Nobody walked out of the theater and was like, fuck that. And I think one of the reasons it was so great is just the last 35 minutes mm -hmm. are just flying along and it's slow and there's other. And then it, when we get to that last kind of. When you get to the waterfall, it just is absolutely face melting. You're just like, even oh before my God. that, I think from the moment. Um, oh, well, they, from, when they get out of the fort. They, when they right. get out of the fort. But like, yeah, that last brick of time from when he says, I'll stay alive, I will find you to the end scene is incredible. Um, can we talk about Blue Moon for a second? You know, you think once in a Blue Moon moments, they should probably happen more than once in a Blue Moon. You getting together with your friends on Zoom? Have you caught, have you caught up with some friends, Chris? I have. Seen anybody? Yeah. 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 Well, why sure. not have a Blue Moon? They're on a mission to celebrate and inspire more of those moments. And with the new blue moon light sky, bet you haven't heard of that, you can enjoy the same crisp citrus flavor you expect from blue moon with a fraction of the calories and less than four grams of carbs. It's light and refreshing, perfect for summertime sipping. Here's how you know blue moon is good. If you have like a whole bunch of different beer, are you like a one beer is in your fridge or like you went to the... You went to the store and you bought like some different types because you didn't know who was going to be over. I'm that. usually a one beer guy, but there's always some stragglers. I am a, I have like the two or three that I want to have, but then I'll, I'll get the random six packs of some other ones. Sure. 
I can tell you is this. When Blue Moon's in the fridge and you're like, hey, I got this, I got that, I got that, at Blue Moon, and the person's just going to be like, oh, I have a Blue Moon. They get excited. So there you go. Uh, whenever you reach for a Blue Moon, be reminded of the extraordinary. Next time you're out with friends or just enjoying a night in, reach in for a Blue Moon. It's a beer you can enjoy every day. Have it delivered by going to get.bluemoonbeer.com and find the delivery options near you. Blue Moon, reach for the moon. Celebrate responsibly. Blue Moon Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Ale. Let's get to the categories. Most rewatchable scene. You know, you know when I know we're doing good movie on the rewatchables? When I have in my notes the ambush scene and then later the second ambush. The second <laughs> ambush. If there's two ambushes in one movie, we're in the right place. It seems like ambush was the go-to move in colonial America. Well, it's like when we did the gladiator rewatchables and it was like, the third gladiator fight. And yeah. then it's like gladiator <laughs> fight number four. It's like, we're probably doing the right movie. So anyway, uh, first rewatchable scene, the the first ambush. Yeah. This is about 20 minutes in the movie when Maga, who's- Magua, yeah. Magua. Why do I keep saying Maga? Magua. You're Magua. transposing the A and the U probably. Yeah. Right? I'm sorry. It's my pronunciation okay. dyslexia. Magua, um, he's he's supposed to be leading Yeah. He's leading supposed to be soldiers working for the, for the Mohawks. Yeah. He could tell something's up. He's muttering stuff in another language under his breath. It's not going well. Then he does the thing where he walks to the back of the pack. It's like, where's he going? Boom. The ambush is on. Um, there's, a great there's a little moment right there. That's an incredible couple of shots of Magua turning around and walking along the entire parade of British soldiers. And then the guy he tomahawks, there's a quick shot. And he kind of like looks at Magua like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> like we haven't we haven't met. I'm Brad. <laughs> and then Mago just crushes him. You're here on yeah. Um, yeah, you also have in that scene you have a scalping and it's like a mm -hmm. subtle, really nice one. Yeah. And then run you of, have one of the mill scalping. And then you have an incredible thrown tomahawk because what happens is our guy Dana Day Lewis, aka Hawkeye, he comes in with his two dudes. And they upend it, and the throne tomahawk from uh, Russell Means's character. What's his name in this movie? Uncas. Oh no, it's Chingachgook. That was the is, son. Is, is, uh, Russell yeah. Means Ch Chingachgook. Yeah, Chingachgook. Well, he he has a throne tomahawk scene. Pretty great. Next one. There's a big argument when the English don't believe our guy Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. And the guy who thinks he wants to marry Madeline Stowe. Duncan. And she has no interest. Duncan. Duncan. And it's kind of getting heated. And Dana Day-Lewis says, someday I think you and I are going to have a serious disagreement. Yeah. If English law cannot be trusted, maybe these people would do better making their own peace with the French. That is sedition. That is the truth. I'll have you beaten from this fort. Someday I think you and I are going to have a serious disagreement. Anyone fomenting or advocating the leaving of Fort William? Now, the best thing about this is it got cut out of the first version of this movie. And and man, because he's a maniac, there's three versions of this movie. There's He's just been re-editing this movie for like 30 years. He was so bitter that they made him release this two-hour cut that then when he did it again, he added two minutes. And then now there's this director's cut that he did within the last decade. And that's three minutes. And he fixed some stuff and he re-added that line. I really like that scene. Next one uh, for rewatchable when Hawkeye he pulls he pulls Cora away and he makes his move. The first kiss. Yeah, gets 
gets her out. And that's when you get this music, Chris Ryan. You get the slow. It hasn't really kicked in. It's just kind of low. It's, it's like, these two are going to get it on. Just keeps going, keeps going. Um, the music is incredible. You know what they should movie. do for us, Bill, when, when quarantine's over? We should get to go to like a club in Vegas and get yeah. somebody to do like a trance remix of that song. And when like the beat drops on it, you and I are just like, yeah, Cora. <laughs> <laughs> it makes everything sound better. I just might keep it in for the background the rest of this. Yeah. <laughs> anytime, anytime we have a rewatchables that lulls, I'm just going to start playing this music to get us fired You should up. try this with, uh, with your wife next time she gets angry at you is just play this music. <laughs> It's like, why? God damn it! Why did why did you go get this when I told you to go get it? And just like, dun, 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 dun. she's like, the sink's a mess. I know it's a <laughs> pandemic, but why aren't you cleaning up more? And I just look at her, and it's like, I'll clean up the sink when I'm good and ready. <laughs> right now, I'm watching basketball. It just came back, <laughs> and she's just gonna be like, something stirs me. <laughs> <laughs> the Blazers are four zero in the bubble. <laughs> Just leave me alone. Let me enjoy this. Um, all right. Next rewatchable scene. The second ambush. This includes Magua ripping the colonel's heart out. Yes. I think you get a tech for that. I think if you if you cut a guy's heart out and say you're gonna wipe his seed from the earth, that's probably excessive trash talk in the in the in the modern NBA. Slight bummer that they don't actually show it. They do the. They you know that Michael Mann it. has that footage. He's saving that oh, for yeah. the 50th anniversary when he's 140 years old and he's like living as a brain in a, in a hard drive somewhere. He's going to be like, here's the full heart cutting scene. No question. Well, and also the ease of which he does it. I, I, I can't imagine it's that easy to rip someone's heart out. We've seen it in. Um, a couple different movies. I, well, know, I don't think he does a Temple ribs. of Doom style. I think he he does some really good knife work there. Wow. And then uh, Dana Day-Lewis saves Cora. Next rewatchable scene, the waterfall. You're strong! You survive! If the worst happens... You stay alive! If they don't kill you, they'll take you north up to Huron land. You submit, do you hear? You're strong! You survive! Stay alive, no matter what occurs. I will find you. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far. I will find you. It's great stuff. If you're not if you, if you, if you're not caught up in that moment, you're a replicant. I don't even know what to tell you. The best part of that even scene, Duncan in that scene, Duncan's like, ah, whatever, man. I can't, I can't, I can't compete with that. <laughs> this guy's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's this guy makes his own cigarettes. I mean, what do you want from me? <laughs> They're looking at him like NBA players look at Giannis, like, wow, he, that guy's a freak. I can't, I can't fuck with it. Uh ne- the other thing with that one is I think that was in the trailer. Because I remember in yeah. the summer of 92, they started throwing the trailer around with the so we had the music. We had Dana Day Lewis running around holding a gun, and then you had that stay alive. And it was just like in. How much? Wait, take my money. Yeah, right. How much right. is how much do tickets cost? Can I buy this now? Um, I have two more scenes. This scene is called Magua presents the two women to two white women a satchel. It includes uh, Hawkeye, aka Nathaniel, aka Daniel Day Lewis, just waltzing in unarmed, taking some licks though. Took a couple licks, kept going, and then. 
Sachem going, the white man came and night entered the future with them. Good quote. And then the a really important trade. Agent World Jurassic reports <laughs> Hawkeye trades Cora's life for the British guy's life and three unprotected first rounders in 1857, 1859, 1861. I feel like unprotected. The There's Duncan, also a pick swap in 1864. Duncan slipped in there and put some protections on the pick, basically. <laughs> He's he did like the Chris Wallace, I'm gonna call you back when my owner's not in the room. Yeah. And just right. at, and that's when he put himself on the block. He was like, Would you be interested in me, maybe instead of uh instead of Cora? I think that would be my favorite scene if if the ending wasn't the ending because I love when you have these movies with with the older Native Americans and there's always that Sachem type. I love those guys. Those guys yeah. are always a home run. Well, I mean, and you just learn so much in such like there's so many points in this movie where he gets across a ton of information about uh, the state of affairs back then mm. within this flow of the drama. So it happens before with all that stuff about the. Um, basically the settlers who are like, well, we'll fight for the militia if we have to, but we have to be able to go back and defend our homes. If there's a war party that, or, you know, if, if there's a war party that c comes along and attacks our homestead and all of that stuff is communicated about it. That's basically the, the sort of early days of like an American revolutionary spirit of them feeling like we have to serve the crown, but the crown doesn't serve us at all. Right. Last one. I, I mean, the whole, the whole cliff thing. Uncas tries to save the sister. Loses. I think I felt like it was at least an even matchup, him and Magua. Magua just takes him out. Yeah. yeah. It's not even close. Magua just, it's it's a 25. He brings in his bench for the final killing. He doesn't even, <laughs> Magua didn't play the fourth quarter. Magua sat the fourth quarter. He played 31 minutes. There's a great slow motion. Ah! from his dad running and seeing it. I classic Michael Mann. Guys I think that, turn in the corners. Like, no. Yeah. And and the the union of of the music with the images that you're seeing is is so overwhelming. This is up there with the bank robbery from Heat for me in terms of like set pieces that Mann's executed. I don't think it's better or like I'm not not trying to be sacrilegious, but I I've wa I watched this like five times last night over and over again. It was just it's unbelievable. It's got indelible images that when you watch it, you can kind of see them in your head already. Like the girl, the younger sister. Yeah. Who's a little iffy in this movie, but um, Uncas has already gone off the cliff and she kind of looks at Magua and he's like, come on, let's go. Yeah. Train's we, leaving the station. I'm happy to make you my wife. And she's just like, I'm, I'm actually going to jump off the cliff and join right. this other guy. Just and as Cora is rounding the corner. Yeah. And she cut the whole thing and her look on her face and then like his confusion. And then he's like, all right, let's move on. <laughs> he mourns her for about a second. Yeah. And it's just like that, you know, the early images of her are her and Cora, like trying to sort of basically domesticate this wilderness and, and put like their like British tea set up in the meadow and like be like, we're going to bring the sensibility of like urban London to the American frontier. And then by the end of the movie, she's just kind of like literally given herself over to, to, to the wild. Yeah. In the wrong hands, they would have had the two scenes where they're having trouble in the wilderness because they're too prissy to be out there, but they never do that. They're mm -mm. just, they, these girls no. are game right away. Yeah. Cora becomes a nurse and everything. Yeah. What, what was your crush level on Madeline Stowe as a teenager? I would say that when I saw her in this movie, she's in Revenge, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so pretty high at revenge levels. <laughs> um, Stakeout was when it really kicked off for her. She's pretty great. Uh, she's pretty great. She had yeah. a really, really, really nice six-year run there. Yeah. Um, and then I think in this, she's almost... Um, it's almost like she's almost incomprehensibly beautiful in this movie, as is Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis. Like, they're just like kind of aliens. She goes... Stakeout in 87. Revenge is 1990. The two Jakes. Sad one. Should have worked. When are we going to do Chinatown? Oh, man. That's a, that's got some what's age the worst. Unlawful Entry in 92. Underrated from hell movie. Last of Mohicans, 92. Another Stakeout, 93. Shortcuts, 93. Right. China Moon and Bad Girls in 94. Oh, I remember 12 Bad Monkeys Girls. in 95. And then Playing by Heart in 98, which I think is a good movie. I'm going to defend Ooh. Playing by Heart. Okay. It's that early Angelina Jolie. Got a little John Stewart in there. Is John, John Stewart, Stewart in Playing by Heart? Yeah, oh, Playing yeah. by Heart. Good movie. I will I will uh, defend that one. So you in that last scene, you also have uh, DDL and the dad just clean house and mm-hmm. take out everybody culminating in the dad just taking out Magua. And one of the coolest shots I think of, of, of that I've ever seen in the movie theater in my life is that wide shot of Magua and Chingachgook looking at each other on the rock before he takes out takes him out with the final swing. The th- oh, it wasn't just a final swing. It's the yeah. 360. Yeah. Yeah. He 360 tomahawk dunks on him, knocks him out. That's <laughs> it. Doesn't even push him off the cliff. Doesn't no. need to. So that's my pick for most rewatchable. I don't know about you. I, I'm going to go with that as well. I would just like to throw an honorable mention in for the uh, scene where DDL uh, runs coverage for the courier from the fort wall. Courier. Worst job in colonial America? <laughs> not a lot of upside. So seems it was like, kind of the, it's the Postmates of 1757. Not a ton of job security. You basically are charged with running great distances at incredible speeds through like in terrifying landscape. And you basically are counting on someone making a one in 1,000 shot from, from a really long way away. And if Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't put enough gunpowder in his rifle, you're like, well, that's it for me. Pretty rough. And Was that you- is the entire like communication system of, of the land at that point, because so much of this movie hinges on couriers not arriving in time. Would you put it... Uh- Above or below being a Postmates driver during the pandemic? I think I'd rather be a Postmates driver. Get I think I would too. Yeah. Um, hey, if you're dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles, finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started can be overwhelming. Thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. I know Magua was using it back in 1757. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online consultation. You'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if appropriate, a doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. You'll receive your custom skincare treatment with free two-day shipping, free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor. If you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions with Roman, no commitments, cancel anytime. Go to getroman.com slash rewatch. Try a three-month supply of Nightly Defense for just $5. It's free to chat with the doctor. Your first order is just $5. Again, getroman.com slash rewatch. Eligibility requirements and additional terms apply. I'm trying to make this easy for Craig Horlback today on a, on a Friday. I know the PJ's on. It's just like one swoop, one straight editing. 
No, no Robert May shenanigans where I'm just restarting a few times. None of that stuff. We're just doing one straight shoot. <laughs> Could have done this live. What's age the best? The music. The music. Should we just stop there? There's a bunch. I have a bunch of things, but I, I, you can make the argument that it's the music. It's the music. It's the music, and then it's the music. Yes, the DDL. You could say I would say West Duty and his his performances. Magua is aged the best too. The romance is really incredible. I also want to send a shout out to uh, 1750s cultural stereotyping between British and French people. I mm. love the their Latinate voluptuousness combines with their Gallic laziness. And the result <laughs> is they'd rather eat and make love with their faces than fight. <laughs> I like English and French people going after it is really great. I really could watch a whole like 50 episode series of just them wiping each other out for about three years there. <laughs> so it was great. I don't know who we were supposed to root for. I have a couple more with Sage the Best. Uh, Chingachuk and his son, Uncas. One of my favorite dad-son combos. Reminds awesome. me a lot of me and my dad. Awesome. I felt like if there was a Red Sox game to watch in 1757, they probably would have been just hanging out in front of the TV talking about 1757 Mookie Betts. Yeah, that's right. Very close. Close father and son. Well, they were, lacrosse was big back then. So they, they would have been, yeah, lax, lax bros. That was another what's age the best for me, the lacrosse scene or the field hockey, whatever sport that was. I was yeah. like, I could watch another five minutes of this. Can we bet on this? <laughs> Round robin tournament? <laughs> I knew, I knew you were going to th throw a couple of uh, King George's shillings on, on the Mohicans. Short-sighted games, maybe? Just yeah. quick ones? Two-minute games? The, uh, the exchange, how can you go to Kentucky in the middle of a war? And DDL goes, you face north, turn left, and walk. It's west of here. Just great. Some really good dialogue in this movie. Good, good underrated sarcasm. Magua, I just have, for what's age, the best. couple things with him. I love when he... When He's muttering under his breath to the English guy before they realize he's going to turn on him. And he goes, Magua understands that the white man is a dog to his woman. When they're tired, he puts down his tomahawk to feed their laziness. It was like kind of early MAGA almost. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I like when, when he goes, when the gray hair is dead, Magua will eat his heart. Before he dies, Magua will put his children under his knife so the gray hair will know his seat is wiped out forever. And then that leads me to what I really love the most, Magua's use of the third person, which I think- Oh, yeah. If we're yeah. like, who created the third person? I think it's Magua Did, did Magua invent talking about yourself in press conferences in the third person? No question. It's yeah. like him, Iverson, a couple other words. Is it Magua or Magua? It's Magua. And when he is in, when he's talking Magua. to Sachem, when he's talking to Sachem, he essentially demands a trade. He's like, oh, fuck this. I'm going to the, the Hurons <laughs> of the Western Lakes. I I I'm not I don't feel like I don't feel appreciated in this locker room anymore. <laughs> he was in the fort bubble trying to convince other people to jump tribes with them. <laughs> they needed a new big three. He's like, I think I have swinging hook, and I think yeah. I have uh the other guy. Um yeah, he he's phenomenal. And if anything, West Duty is too good as as Magua because I couldn't shake Magua from every other time I saw him in a movie for about eight years. Like when he's in heat, I just kept part of me is expecting him to just turn on uh, Al Pacino. Cause oh, yeah. it's just such a, such an intense performance. He's so good. He stands out, you know, and you need like Jeremiah Johnson had a guy like that. You really need like, if it's, if we're going to have the villain, you really need that guy. You need to but feel you, like that. But you said evil. this earlier in the, in the pod, 
the the genius of the characterization of Magua in this movie is that it's it's not one hundred percent a villain. It's not like a super villain. He's not the Joker. He's he's a guy who is dead set on revenge. And there's a version of this movie that you can tell from Magua's perspective where he's like, I'm I'm basically like out for justice. Do you think it in 2020s like the player friendly NBA? If we had the media in 1757, there would have been a lot of Magua defenders. You got to understand where he's coming from. I know, I know he tomahawked those 27 English soldiers, but you got to understand, he gave a great interview a week ago. I love his, uh, his third person use kills me to no end. And, uh, and just in general, seems like a badass. Really does seem like he could wipe out 20 dudes at the same time. What's age the worst? It's a lot of info to take in in the first hour of this movie. Yes. It's a movie I you have to like see like that. 15 times. Yeah. And the way that they did the dialogue is there's never... I think Duncan's arrival is supposed to be the let's reset and talk about everything. Like when Duncan, Duncan is bringing Cora and Alice everywhere, I think you're supposed to get all the information in those scenes. But they do those scenes in such a way where like it kind of sounds like the way people were probably talking back then. And they don't really make a lot of concessions to like, wait, what's happening? I think you're just supposed to get the general broad strokes. Well, I'll tell you, I've seen this movie a bunch of times and I'm still confused by some stuff. Okay. It's it's a movie that I hate narrators. It's yeah. a movie that arguably could have used a narrator to help move a couple of things. Yeah, are you thinking like you want Henry Hill to narrate Last of the Mohicans? <laughs> you want Le- Leota in there? <laughs> yeah, or the ghost of Magua. Even Magua's going to tell you a story. What if it was like Magua <laughs> hits that guy with the tomahawk, freeze frame. It's like, the thing about Magua was he was really a nice guy. Magua, you just yeah. had to get to know him. Magua was just a competitor. <laughs> and he just a wanted Rolling to win. Stone song starts. Uh, the uh, another what's age the worst for me. It, it's definitely in the first hour could speed up a tiny bit. You could get yeah, moving. They, you could move some pieces and get the information the way you need to get it to. I know he's trying to set up the last half hour, but you know. I think they also have to set up the slow burn of of Hawkeye and Korra. So you have to give them a mm. little bit of time spent so it's not just, I see you from across the fort and it's absolute, it's time to go. But that being said, the music could take care of a lot of that. I think you probably sure. could have lost a few minutes from that and then just been like, here, hit play on that. We're in love now. And this is a Michael Mann device where the mm-hmm. music and two you know, a male and a female character who have the hots for each other just longingly looking at each other was just a Michael Mann playbook. But this move. is absolutely the best, my favorite relationship in any Michael yeah. Mann movie. I mean- They barely talk. I yeah. they, what did, they, did they have one real conversation the yeah. entire movie? I'm sorry the chicken is overcooked, Cora. <laughs> I'm sorry if the venison is dry. This hero is not watching my TV. I'm out here looking for pelts. <laughs> I'm trading furs for you. Cora's like, we're two ships passing the night. He's That's like, right. it's 1757. What the fuck do you want from me? I'm just trying to stay alive. It's people coming out of the sides trying and to And no get us. Duncan cannot watch my television. <laughs> uh, another what's age the worst. I wanted more from the little sister, both as an actress, a performer. I don't know. I think she's perfect. She's shell-shocked, man. She is completely shell-shocked in this movie. So how does she fall in love then? She doesn't speak. Well, I think it's more... I, I, You know, there was an interesting uh, 
thing about like whether or not there had ever been like a love scene between Uncas and, and Alice or whether or not like they had like more of a relationship that wasn't included in the movie. But I think generally it's taken to be that it's more of like a puppy love. Like it's more of a like we kind of are just two crazy kids trying to figure it out. We feel this thing. I'm pre- I feel protective of you, but that they're pretty young. I ah, could have used a two minute scene with them to set it up. It comes out of nowhere. You could tell something got edited along the way. I don't really have any other What's Age the Worst. I think this movie's really good. Casting What Ifs. Brian Cox was offered the part of Colonel Monroe. Turned mm. it down. Andy McDowell was in the mix for uh, Cora Monroe, which is interesting because there's a very fascinating market correction thing going on between her and Madeline Stowe. Because mm. you could have easily flipped them in every movie, basically. Yeah. Like Madeline Stowe could have been in Groundhog Day in two seconds. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Andy McDowell could have been in Stakeout. Like they just, whatever. It's it, like Madeline Stowe easily could have been in Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Yeah. So I think if I had to say who won that battle between the two of them, I think Madeline Stowe wins. Like just all-time career? Just that that nine-year stretch when they're probably the finalists for about 10 different movies. I think Madeline <laughs> Stowe wins it. I don't I, think don't Andy McDowell like- could have done bad, been the lead of Bad Girls. No, but could Madeline Stowe have been the star of Four Weddings and a Funeral? Yeah. Oh, I think she's I think a little so. overpowering. Okay. Wish Fantasy was here, he would agree with me. I- Jean, Jean Reno was offered the role of General Montcalm. That would have been weird. I think it was one of the French guys. That's all I yeah. got for casting. No, he's the general, man. man. Man went into this movie. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. Best That Guy, a.k.a. the Joey Pants Award. He's only in like one or two scenes, but that guy from Oz, Terry Kinney. Terry Kinney is plays uh, John Cameron, right? Or whatever yeah. the, guy, the guy's name is, Settler. Yeah, he's in one scene. I, I So for you, can I give Joey Pants to Pete Postlewaite? No, because I think he's Pete Postlewaite. Okay, but I just want to be able to do this one thing. I want him to go up to Cora and Alice and be like, I gave your mother a little taste. <laughs> she loved it. <laughs> your daddy worked for me. <laughs> Vincent Hanna, give me all you got a word. Most overacting. Colonel Monroe dials it up a couple of times. I'm going Montcalm on this one. Just for yeah. the, the bow that he does, the little curtsy to, to, That's to him. Yeah. I'll give it to you. Uh, Deanne Waiter's award for best heat check. I think uh, Magua is ineligible. I think he's in too much of the movie. Okay. I really like the five minutes Sachem gives us in this movie. I'll give you. I, I'll I give like that. his demeanor. I like everything he says. I like the, his line about the white men and the darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, I like how he brokers the trade. I think he leaking it to Wojnarowski was the right move. And then how he listens to uh, DDL, switches it a little bit, kind of understands Magwa's not exactly um, somebody he should be helping out. I just liked his performance. Actor named Mike Phillips played that role. Yeah, there you go. Recasting couch. So you're happy with the actress who played the little sister who is really never seen again. Yeah, well, who's your idea? Zuma Thurman too old for that part? 1992 Uma Thurman? It's two years after Dangerous Liaisons. It's probably like at the very edge of how old she could be. And Alicia Silverstone's too young? No, she's, I, I don't buy it. She's got to be British, not, she's not American. Can I give you Drew Barrymore? Nope. No. Drew Barrymore, so you don't no want, way. You don't want anybody who's famous. You just want kind of a shell-shocked 
no yeah, in that that's part. what the role is. It's like she's this young girl who's been like ripped out of the life she knew and is in this completely wild place. She's not going to be like Alicia Silverstone being like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, then I don't have any recast. Oh my God, Uncas. Have fast internet research. Got a, like, a lot of Michael Mann stuff. There's a famous story about, you know, he's doing at least 20 takes per setup. Uh, they the budget went seven million behind beyond what it was supposed to go. Twentieth Century Fox had to send a rep to keep it on track, and they and he had speakers that he would belt out stuff. And there's this famous story where he starts screaming at one point, "What's that orange light? Turn out that orange light!" And somebody was like, "That's the sun," because the sun was coming out. <laughs> Who knows if that's true? The uh, they went to North Carolina to do the 1757 rural New York stuff. You mentioned that earlier. Uh, he spent 6 million bucks just to build the Fort William Henry set. Yeah. So it was had to, to uh, the historical specifications. He decided he didn't like the waterfall scene and reshot it nine days before reviewers saw the movie. So they went back in and I think the stay alive, I will find you. I was a reshoot. He, he like, got that on the reshoot. Yeah. According to... Uh, a 1996 interview by Randy Edelman, um, the new guy who did the score, yeah, came on because Michael Edelman Mann fired what, Trevor Jones. He because Trevor Jones had been doing kind of like more of an electronic score, and so he brought in Edelman to do more of a classical thing. Tough, tough one for Trevor Jones. I mean, he still gets credit on on the piece of music that you play for your wife when you don't clean the sink. True, but at the same time. You don't want to get replaced. At the same time, deep down, he knows this wasn't his. <laughs> that this was somebody else's music. What was the guy's name? Trevor Jones? Trevor Jones and Randy Edelman did the, the, the music. Michael Mann's like, Trevor, can I speak to you for a second? And then he just stares at him for 10 seconds and puts on the music. And it's like, you've been replaced. <laughs> That's it. Um, okay. More half-ass internet research. Costumes, that guy also got bounced. It was originally a multiple Academy Award winner named Jay Matchison, but he left the film and had his name removed because of artistic differences with Michael Mann. Designer Elsa Zamparelli was brought in to finish. So he was a delight to work with, except for the, the two or three people in every movie that Michael Mann ever made that always ended up walking off the set. The movie was scheduled for summer 92, but he made a three-hour version. Fox freaked out. They postponed it till September. They got it to two hours. As we said earlier, there are three different cuts. One good thing he did, he used 900 Native Americans from all over the United States, employed for most notably the Cherokee tribes. And, oh, Russell Means. We mentioned him earlier. Yeah. He was 52. This is his first movie. He was a famous uh, American Indian movie activist. You know what happened to him in 1984? He ran for vice president as Hustler Publishers Larry Flint's running mate. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was a Flint Means ticket. Somehow <laughs> didn't win. Honestly, would take it today. <laughs> and then, and then uh, in 88, he pursued the Libertarian nomination and lost to Ron Paul. And then uh, this is, I don't know what to make of this, but this is half-assed. Apparently, DDL and, uh, and Stowe loved to prank each other, had a practical joke war on the set. Started with food fights and escalated to a bloody car crash faked by Day Lewis and his chauffeur for Stowe to stumble upon. 
I don't know if I, I believe this. I don't know if I, I believe I it either. Too. He's he's rolling cigarettes from the 1700s, but faking car crashes. So yeah, it's like he's carving out a canoe. He's living like Daniel Boone. And then he's like, oh, I got to call up Barry so that we can do this crazy prank on Stowe. That would be great. Yeah. I don't think that happened. I'm going to say that didn't happen. Uh, one more break. Talk about Blue Apron. Chris, you cooking at home more than ever? Ever. More well, than ever. Blue Apron takes the guesswork out of dinner, and we mean more than just deciding what to eat. Know your ingredients are being prepared and packaged with the highest attention to quality and safety. Commitment to transparency from them, reducing waste. They have your backs in more ways than one. You can feel good about your food and your environmental impact. With Blue Apron, the first meal kit to partner with How to Recycle. Over 85% of their packaging is recyclable. 41% of their packaging materials are made from recycled content. And they're the first meal kit company to transition to Drain Safe fully recyclable ice packs. I know you like those. Yeah. Feel good about your choices. Create delicious meals at home with Blue Apron. Prices start as low as $7.49 per serving. Don't sacrifice flavor. Don't settle for boring meals. Find comfort in the kitchen with Blue Apron. Enjoy delicious home-cooked meals. Again, in your home. Check out this week's menu. Get $30 off across your first two deliveries when you visit blueapron.com slash rewatch. Once again, that's blueapron.com slash rewatch. Blue Apron, feed your soul. Apex Mountain. Not DDL. What would you say Daniel Day-Lewis's Apex Mountain was, though? Because maybe you could make the argument that it is his Apex Mountain. I think it's his mainstream Apex Mountain, but I think his Apex Mountain is There Will Be Blood. That's one of the great performances of the last 50 years. And I think we were still maybe under the misguided impression that he might work more often back in 2007. So it seemed yeah. like after after that, maybe he would do any number of things. After there will be blood, I I the ceiling was off for him. I felt like any whatever he wanted to do, I, I was in. Um, Michael Mann, I would no. say no. Mm-hmm. I think it's heat. Yeah. Wes Studi, unfortunately, yes. Yeah, he's great in this movie. Madeline Stowe, I'm going to say yes. I don't see why not. Yeah. Jody May, I'm going to say yes, because I don't know what happened to her after this movie. Sure. Yeah. Full, full-scale full tomahawk throws. I mean, name a better one. Can't think of one. Everybody everybody was getting tomahawks after this movie. They were like, I got I to gotta go get my own. Talking about yourself in the third person? Probably no, but I just wanted to flag it. Um, falling off a giant cliff into a waterfall. Or whatever the hell happened when he I, jumps I, onto the waterfall, or when she, when Allison when Alice no when when, when DDL jumps into the waterfall, I'm yeah. gonna say this was Apex Mountain because the next year is the Fugitive. That's right, that's right. Andrew Davis saw that and was like, I gotta I gotta revise this. So somewhere in this 92 93 range, we yeah. peaked with waterfall jumping. Does does Daniel Day Lewis invent water parks in Last of the Mohicans? Where he's just <laughs> he like, you know, it's fun riding this. <laughs> he might have. I don't have any other Apex Mountain, do you? No, I mean, I think it probably is Apex Mountain for Colonial Frontiers movies. Colonial Frontier movies. I can't think of a better film that tackles this era. It might be the best Revolutionary War era movie, if you call it that. You could say it might be the Apex Mountain for action movies using that kind of MTV type of style with some... With the music crossed with just a lot of I'll be curious to see whether or not I I because you you've said that a couple of times. I think of it as more classical than that. Like I do think of it as 
Yeah, he's definitely doing the closing montage trick a little bit with the amazing music over action. But I, I, I feel like it's a pretty traditionalist movie. So I'd be curious to see whether people agree on that. But yeah, I think that it's the... It, it, it's the logical conclusion of that style that he starts with Miami Vice. It certainly feels like an incredibly more modern movie than Jeremiah Johnson, yes. I guess is my point. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and a movie that could come out now and feel pretty unchanged. Yeah. I don't think they would uh, change a lot. Picking nits. I don't have a lot other than I just didn't understand when the little sister fell for our guy Uncas. You didn't feel like they all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they were into each other, and I I missed the scene where they went and got ice cream. Yeah, or Um, uh, went to go take a dump in the woods together, or whatever. Whatever brought them together, we just didn't know. I just I feel like with the I want to get back to the couriers here for picking Mm. nits. Do we not have any like safeguards? You don't have like a fallback guy who's also going. I mean, I know that they said like one of them sends like three people and they all get caught. But it just seems like you're really hanging by a thread during a time of war if you're basing everything off of a guy getting across a forest with a parchment paper. So Chris Ryan in the 1750s is putting in like a triple courier backup system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're not, you're not just leaving it up to the one dude. I'm also trying to, I'm trying to train some birds of the forest to carry these things because it's like, I, I don't know if my guys are going to be able to make the, the, the sprints. Another picking nits is just the whole when she has tea with that dude. Mm-hmm. When he's like, "Hey, I think with Duncan, when I think, uh, I think you and I, we could end couple. up together." Yeah, they're just not in this giant field. But there's a table and tea, and they, they're a million miles away from anybody. It's like, did they have? Is this some restaurant in 1757? Was there a staff that did this? Well, like, what is this? There's that line where it's like England's policies make the world England, or it's basically this idea that you can recreate your your home anywhere you go because of, and that's like their imperialist bent. Another picking nits for me, and this isn't even the movie, just with that whole era is the the guys with the wigs on. Like what what would your wig strategy have been back then? <laughs> would you have tried to go age appropriate or or gotten a little more ambitious? Just, you know, what would you have done? Like so would I Colonel Monroe goes uh gray hair for the wig, which I guess is age appropriate, right? What do would you, you have gone with the little curls around like above the shoulders or would you have gone longer? Like what, what would the I would have gone have been for you? Nick Cage, Con Air. That's <laughs> what I think. I would have gone more mullet, right? Yeah. Why even have those though? It's such a weird time back then. Any other uh, pick and nits? No, I, I, that was it. Two quotes that we have mentioned yet. Death and honor are thought to be the same, but today I learned sometimes they are not. I thought that was a good one. And then- I would rather make the gravest of mistakes than surrender my own judgment. You've complimented me with your persistence and patience, but the decision I have come to is that I'd rather make the gravest of mistakes than to surrender my own judgment. Uh, sadly, Billy King said that right before he joined <laughs> Damien Lillard in 2012. We did someday. You and I are going to have a serious disagreement. We did stay alive. I will find you. There's, there's a yeah. That's that, the best quote. Stay alive. You, you're quote. going to Kentucky. Go face south. Yeah. Turn left. Yeah. Could this be remade as a ten episode Netflix show? I think it could be. I think it'd be really expensive if you're going to do it correctly. It'd be one of the most expensive ten episode shows ever. I think it would have solved some of the stuff you're talking about in terms of the confusion over the sort of political social context in the beginning of the movie and Alice and Uncas's relationship. But I think it is. It does kind of work. As this, and also as we know, Michael Mann would just tinker with it all the time, so probably never get done. We would have gotten more of a backstory with Magua. Yeah, 
like he recorded his own music. It's big. He coached the youth lacrosse team. It's a whole other side to him. He just didn't see it in this movie. Uh, probably unanswerable questions. I don't really have any. I don't have a lot of unanswered questions about the 1750s other than I still don't know who we were supposed to be rooting for between the English and the French. I mean, it's a complicated... Is that Yankees, Red Sox? What was I that? think it's probably more complicated that we have time to handle right now, but I'm also not an expert on like how the French Indian War, so I'm not really sure. I mean, like, I guess it all worked out in the end. Hmm. Who won the movie? Daniel Day-Lewis. No Michael Mann? It's, it's a great Michael Mann movie, but this is among my favorite Daniel Day-Lewis performances. This is... A, and he is, he is like rock star celebrity fucking A-list, you know, up there with like, he just becomes like an absolute household name off of this movie. And he, and he chose to do go in a different direction, which I think is fascinating. Dana Day-Lewis as Neil McCauley. I love it, man. Why I love are you the, so interested in what I do for a living lady? <laughs> Could you imagine though, like if he did that role and he like has to spend five years learning about metals and, and bank and, and bank actually robbers. robbing banks. It's like Dana Day-Lewis is now an expert safe safe breaker. Does a, a, a three-year stint in San Quentin just to get used to it? Yeah. Right. Dana Day-Lewis was murdered today in San Quentin when he was preparing for a role and they didn't realize he was an actor. Yeah, that would he definitely would have gone over the top of that. Last Mohicans, a classic. How many man movies have we done now? So we've done Collateral, Heat, Twice, Last the Mohicans. And we did The Insider for Rewatchables 99. So we still have to do Manhunter. Yeah. We, would you? We got. I would like to do Ali actually. Black Hat. Yeah. Public Enemies. I don't think Public Enemies is going to crack the list. Okay. You you. That's where your Michael Mann fandom goes too far. Oh, and we did Miami Vice as well. Obviously, and we did Miami Vice. So does he have the director lead for us right now? We've done five Michael Mann movies plus the same movie twice. Have we? Have, how many Finchers have we done? We did Social Network. We haven't done enough. Oh, we haven't, yet. Yeah. we haven't even done seven yet. Yeah, that's right. We haven't done the game, which Netflix Unsolved <laughs> Mysteries has totally reinvented. We've done a bunch of Tony Scott's. That's true. We've done a lot of Tony Scott. And Last Boy Scott's coming too at some point soon. Um, all right, Chris, I want you to know one thing. I want you to stay alive this weekend, no matter. You should, you no should matter clean your sink, Bill. Play, play the music. Play us out. Play us out. <laughs> play, we're taping this on a Friday. I want you to stay alive this weekend. Hold on. Uh-oh. This is what I'm going to think about when I'm reading blogs this weekend. <laughs> ben Simmons' partial kneecap. <laughs> he might be back in a month. I need Shake Milton to come through for me. <laughs> is this what it was like when you heard the, the Ben Simmons news? That's right. When he I like to make up court? little songs about the Sixers roster. <laughs> Why isn't Zaire Smith back? <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll have one more rewatchables for you coming on uh, on Wednesday. Doing two weeks for the rest of this month. Thanks for listening. Chris, always a pleasure. See you, Bill. 